So today we're continuing um, the study, the subject, the matter that we began last week, this, this look at the cross, the death of Jesus. And the death of Jesus in terms of what is, what is the meaning of this death? Why did Jesus die? And today we are, we were to embark into this discussion specifically as it relates to this matter that we call in Christian circles salvation. How does Jesus' death impact what we have called salvation? And I think for us the question begs, what do we mean by salvation for sure? Um, last week it was very interesting as we opened up this topic of the death of Jesus and we just put the microphone to you and ask you to tell us what the death means for you. It was really amazing to hear the latitude, um, the incredible latitude. This week as I was preparing for this sermon, thinking about all of your comments last week and thinking about how we would discuss scapegoat theory, atonement theory, substitutionary atonement theory, penal substitutionary atonement theory, ideas like Christus Victor. Um, as, as I was pursuing all of that academically and just pastorally trying to make sense of it and think about how this sermon would go today, uh, the events of the week literally hijacked that study. Uh, they hijacked that study and because my mind was on the cross, because my mind was on the death and the suffering of Jesus, it was very hard for me to make sense of doing a message today about making sense of substitutionary penal atonement when the death of Jesus centrally was impactful for me this, this week and the death of Jesus in a lot of ways was, this might be extreme to say, but the death of Jesus was a great part of what got me through this week. The death of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus was a big part of what caused me to say what I said a moment ago. The suffering of Jesus, the, the unity of Jesus with humanity was a big part of what caused me to have a moment of contrition and even conviction in a YMCA this week. So uh, let me make a decision on the fly here and let me just say a few things about the cross as it relates to this week and then we'll come back to the other matter um, in the weeks to come. Melissa and I can, are always willing to shift if, if life so decides that. For years and years living in a conservative fundamentalist Christian world of deeply sincere people, myself deeply sincere, a picture was painted for me of God by sincere well-meaning people that I sincerely bought hook, line, and sinker. The picture that I had of God um, was a very scary picture, a picture of a very angry God, a picture of a holy God that loved me to some extent but certainly did not like me and tolerated me at best. Coming out of that world um, I began to have people like Philip Yancey, Tony Campolo, and others, moderate evangelical Christian writers that began to point me to the life of Jesus. They began to point me to the life of Jesus um, in such dramatic ways. Uh, Brennan Manning, Henry Nouwen, these wonderful Christian writers pointed me to the life of Jesus, and I 
in the red letters of Jesus and in the life of Jesus, I, I found a lot of healing for this relationship that I had with this very scary God. Um, I had, for whatever reason, not found myself as one of those children pulled into the lap of Jesus, loved by Jesus, protected by Jesus, defended by Jesus. I, I had not found myself to date experiencing God through the person of this one who walked up to trees and told little men like Zacchaeus to come down in spite of their lives and gave them meaning and worth. I, I was not a woman with an alabaster box who had found mercy and grace. That was not my life. My, my relationship with God was stuck somewhere back in stories like number, Numbers 34. A story that has God telling the children of Israel to commit genocide against a group of people because that group of people were not of the truth and that group of people because they were not of the truth and because they did things contrary to our standard of life that group of people deserve to die and Moses leading the children of Israel at the behest of God to kill an entire group of people and yet finding in that process pangs of conscience in their own soul that caused them to pull the punch and to not pull the trigger on children and sick and elderly people. Only to come back and to have to give account to God why the genocide was not complete. And to be excoriated by God through Moses that they had not but killed everybody and God said go back and kill them all. They don't deserve to live even the children and the elderly. This is one of those passages that if you caught people on the streets in the Christian Southern Bible Belt and you read that text and told them it was from the Koran, they would absolutely understand, join in and say, yeah, that's a horrible book, only to find out it's from our book. It's from the very text that Jesus shared about himself and even said, testified of him. Well, the, the people told by God through Moses to go back and kill them all turned begrudgingly to go back and kill them all. And as they were going to kill them all, trying to reconcile how they could, could kill children, they had figured out how to kill adults who were not of the truth and were not of our group and deserved to die because they were infidels. All of this at the behest of a God that I was taught I had to relate to. And yet God catches them as they turn and says, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. You don't have to kill them all. And the people are like, whew, okay, great. God has had a pang of conscience now. Except the explanation given is you don't have to kill them all. You can keep the little girls who are virgins for yourself. It's in our book. It's the stuff of ISIS. And with no finesse, no good hermeneutic of context and proper way of seeing Scripture, that's the only God I knew. So by the, way, by the time Yancey and Campolo helped me and many of us matriculate to the red letters, the red letters were incredibly better than that. And I lived for a long time saying that Jesus in effect saved more than me Jesus saved God for me 
Anybody had that feeling in your life? Jesus, finally getting over to the red letters, out of that stuff. Jesus saved God from me. And then I lived for years with Jesus and the Jesus people. And the red letters and the Jesus people I lived with were obviously, Steve, better than that. But even our life together and our prejudices against women, people of color, people of different orientation, I began to feel that the cancer was less malignant, but the cancer was still there. And it was not even benign. We still were doing diabolical things to humanity, perpetrating a message of eternal torture and even perpetrating that torture amongst ourselves because of simple things like gender and orientation and color of skin. We did those things far less blatantly, but they were tacitly and really there. And if they were benign and not malignant, they were still large enough in mass in our hearts, souls, and brains that they were deadly in their benignness. They were still deadly. And Jesus began to wear thin for me. Because I, I found stories in the book of Acts, which was on the other side of the red letters, where the early church was so moved by the infilling of the Spirit that the first thing they did, this was what they did when they were moved by the infilling of the Spirit, they looked around and they saw the misdistribution of means and wealth among them and it became immediately intolerable. It's the first thing that happened. First thing that happened is the Spirit fell, they spoke with tongues, and immediately after that they looked at one another and they could not understand how all of us speaking in heavenly languages and being filled with the Spirit could live such abjectly different lives, such disparate lives, and it bothered them. And there is no clean answer. The history of, the history of political systems, the history of uh, economic philosophies has proven there is no easy answer to this. And I do not believe the early church's knee-jerk to this was absolutely the best approach. But the fact that they knee-jerked out of their soul, I think, is very meaningful. And the Bible says they could not, as they stopped speaking in tongues, they could not tolerate the fact that some of them were throwing food down their garbage disposals that others on the same pew were starving for. It just did not make sense. It didn't make sense that we were praising God about a new houseboat we bought while a single parent on our row could barely put shoes on their kids' feet. It didn't make sense to them. And I'll tell you what they did. The Bible's clear. They immediately liquidated their lives turned all of their substance into cash and brought it to the apostles' feet, laid it to their apostles' feet, and the apostles redistributed the wealth as they saw fit. <laughs> Boy, there's a conversation to be had there, isn't there? We've been having that one for 2,000 years. Mark certainly, certainly did not get it right. Um, neither did Hobbes or Locke or the capitalist. We're still working on that one. All I know is the heart response was they could not tolerate, Steve, that some of us have three homes while some who are just as beloved of God are living underneath a, and it's not easy enough just to say it's what they chose and it's their fault when you mix in the, yeah, mental health. The cracks are still so big in our society. 
The cracks are not so tight that it's clean enough to say everybody gets what they deserve. It's just not true. The early church recognized that, and they sought to have an equitable distribution. Um, it didn't work. It didn't work because the initial move was that this would be voluntary. And voluntary redistribution of wealth out of the abundance of generosity is the only way this ever works. And Roy, that's what happened first. And it, was, it had to be overwhelming to watch people moved by the Spirit want things to be equitable. But immediately, the apostles didn't handle it well because, Brian, you, you never lay this feet, you never lay all this money at the feet of God. You lay it at the feet of servant leaders, politicians, and preachers. And immediately, by the next chapter, the distribution's not going well. And it's pretty apparent that one group of widows in the church were not getting. Because of their birth, they were Greek-speaking. They were not getting the same distribution that the Jewish women were getting in their widowhood. The apostles did not even contend that that wasn't true. When that accusation was brought and they said, this distribution is not going right, you guys are Jewish and you are tacitly, latently, subconsciously taking care of Jewish widows better than you're taking care of Gentile widows. Thank God that the apostles didn't argue that and say, well, that's beneath us. We would never, we don't, we would never, ever be prejudiced against Greek-speaking widows. They threw up their hands. There was still enough spirit moving in them. They threw up their hands and said, maybe so. Maybe so. You know what they did? They picked seven deacons, they were called, and all seven of them had Greek names because they knew sometime affirmative action is the only way you heal an extreme. And they did not get three Jews, two Hellenized Jews, and two fully Greek-speaking Christians. They just got seven Greek men, and they said, if you guys and your widows are the ones who've been hurt, it was the first real picture of affirmative action I think you see in history, at least in the text. They put the Greeks over it and said, you're going to have to correct this extreme. So that was affirmative action. Um, and then a whole other problem happened. Because people were willingly giving their money at that time, there was a couple in one of the churches named Ananias and Sapphira. And Ananias and Sapphira, before you condemn these people, just think about what was happening. Think about right now in this church, if everybody decided to liquidate everything they have and lay it at the feet of our elders, our board here. I mean, who would do that? Number one, none of us would trust them to have the capacity to handle that. Number two, anybody willing to do that? Anybody ready to do that? Give up your whole life, liquidate, and have it redistributed? Ananias and Sapphira one night were sitting somewhere privately in their home, and they just looked at one another and they said, um, everybody's giving it all. Can you do that? And somewhere in their marriage, they agreed they could not do that. All they agreed on, Brian, all they agreed on was we can't, 10%, 10%, I'd love to give 10%. It's amazing. We're all averaging about 2%. They would have been happy with 10%. But the request right then, the pressure then was 100%. And all Ananias and Sapphira said is we can't give 100% of our money to the church. We just can't. 
And the sad story goes that in spite of the fact that they couldn't give 100%, which I couldn't either, they felt the pressure that the only way they were going to belong in this community was to act like they had given 100%. That's church for you, isn't it? I can't be this, so I'm going to have to come up with enough smoke and mirrors to cover the fact that I can't be this, but I still look like this because it's the only way the community works. Isn't that what we're all trying our best to get away from and believing one last time that maybe we could do it differently? Isn't that why a lot of us are here? Who knows? And they went to the church, and I guarantee it was more than 10% because the lie wouldn't have worked if it was only 10%. People knew them well enough. They probably took 50 to 70% of what they had and just kept back a portion, laid at the apostles' feet, and the story on this side of the red letters goes that Peter called them in one at a time and said, you've lied to the Holy Ghost. And they both were zapped, fell dead in the church, and were carried out and buried. And all of a sudden, Brian, I thought, my God, I thought I'd gotten on the other side of the red letters, and now I'm right back in Numbers 34. On this side of the red letters with God killing people. And my hermeneutic had to grow. My understanding of how the biblical text is written and what the biblical text is had to grow. And I had to reconcile in my mind, do I see in Jesus the kind of God that would kill people for lying within a church culture of giving pressure? kill them and if we're still a New Testament church is God still doing that kind of stuff and in my heart I intuited and came to the conclusion I don't believe that I just I simply do not believe that it's not that I don't want to believe that I don't believe that I don't think that's who God is and I had to yet reconcile well how is this book written in this way and I pressed in deeper and I have eventually come, and this is what I wanted to say to you just in short, and I think it's very germane to what we've been going through this week. I have come to a point where on the other side of this long process of reformulating, reframing, reconstructing my faith, I have come to a point where I no longer say that Jesus has saved God from me but on the other side of Jesus wearing almost completely thin for me, I have found that it wasn't Jesus that has worn thin for me. It's what we've done to him and what we've said about him and all the Jesuses that we've built, which is just a normal part of the process. We're not wrong for it. It's just the way it is. I mean, it's exactly what the disciples did. Those closest to Jesus, we have this model in Scripture. Those closest to Jesus pressed him always to be something that he wasn't, and they were continually disappointed with what he was, only for him to stick with them, them to stick with him, and get to the other side and find a better Jesus than they had known. Over and over, that, read the Gospels. That is what happens all the way through. Jesus is forever being reframed in their mind. They are continually having to let go of Jesus and refine Jesus. And on the other side of my process, I have finally come to a point, and some of you aren't there yet. Some of you have been there for a while. I have come to a point where I can say today 
that years ago Jesus saved God for me, but in the last several years, God has ended up saving Jesus for me. This sense of spirit and this sense of direct connection that I have to God through humanity and people, I can say now that I, I am Christian. I do believe in Jesus, and he is the primary spiritual teacher in my life. And if I were to tell you one thing that God has employed about Jesus to reconvince me and move me and keep me deeply tied into Jesus, it is the cross for me. It is the suffering of Jesus for me. The miracles, not so much. I would figure if God were God, God could walk on water if God wanted to. The miracles, the healings, all of that stuff, the wise teachings, those things have not hooked me. What I personally, and I say this to a lot of people who are deconstructing just to give you some sense of hope or some sense of insight into another life and another journey very similar to yours, it is the cross and the dying of Jesus that would not let go of me. It is the cross and the dying of Jesus, Steve, that I could not quit being moved by. And, and this is what moves me most about, most about the death of Jesus. Is this hermeneutical key found in John the 14th chapter. On the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus said something that I intuit is absolutely right. Jesus stated his life purpose on that night before his crucifixion when he looked at a group of disciples and said, I want you to hear me. They called God Father. Within the construct of their culture, it made sense to call God Father. God was certainly an eternal parent in their mind, and if you were going to go one way or another in the gender, in a male supremacy context, obviously they would go Father. So it was, it was Father that they knew God as. And Jesus on that night said something incredibly profound when he looked at them, Antonio, and he said, I, want you, I just want you to know something. I want you to know before you see it tomorrow. You don't even know what you're going to see tomorrow. And to say this to you after you see it, you could not even hear it. But before you see it, I want you to go into that moment and I want you to hear me. When you have seen me, you have seen God. When you look at me, you are seeing the character, the nature, and the activity of God. Furthermore, he said, I do not do anything that I don't first see my Father in heaven doing. He not only said, I don't say anything but what I hear my Father say, he said, I don't do anything except what I see my Father doing. And that next day when he said, nobody takes my life from me. If you want an omnipotent God with all power, you've got one. Nobody can crucify me. Nobody can kill me. Nobody takes my life from me. I 
lay it down. To hear Jesus say, I willingly, with all power in my hand, turn it over, empty myself of power, and lay my life down in abject suffering. And to watch him do that, even Philippians 2 said, to the extremity of a death on a cross, the worst, most torturous death, to watch that process through the hermeneutic, the lens, the interpretive lens, to watch that process through the lens of when you have seen me, you are seeing what God is like. And to watch Jesus that night on the eve of his crucifixion say, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And to watch him in the chapter before that statement, the context in which he said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. One chapter earlier, he gathers his disciples together one last time, and John 13 says, he knew that all power was in his hand. I'm telling you, here's why I'm still Christian. I don't know another religion that captures the beauty of what I think is the divine like this story. When he knew that all power was in his hands. He said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's why I'm okay with orthodoxy and Jesus was especially God and divine. Because everything was in his hand. And when he knew that it was all in his hand, and when he knew they were watching him and he was showing them what God was like, John 13 said when he knew that all power was in his hand, when he knew that he had come from God and he was going to God, those hands full of power took off his outer robe, reached for a towel, wrapped himself in a towel, got down at the feet of a man named Judas and started cupping water onto those feet and washing. He washed his betrayer's feet clean so that they might be clean in his betraying. And while he was washing their feet, his own disciples, still not getting it, said, Hey, you were talking about the kingdom. When you get there, who's going to be the secretary of state and who's going to be your vice president? Which one of us will be greatest? And J.W., Jesus looked at them and said, you don't get it. Let whoever is greatest among you do this. This is what you do with power. And that man with clean feet came back to him politically, desperately confused a few hours later. And with 300 men there with clubs and spears, that man with clean feet kissed Jesus on the face. And Peter couldn't stand it, and he drew a sword, and he went for one of their heads, and the guy flinched, and the sword cut off the man's ear, and Jesus screamed, Stop it! Stop it! And everybody stops and the guy's bleeding and Jesus reaches down and picks up the ear, puts it back on his head and he says, Simon, put your sword away. Help me, don't help me. 
And he stands up with all power in his hands and he says, when you've seen me, you've seen God. And they start beating him and pummeling him. And for every helpless four-year-old in the back seat of a car who can't stop her dad from getting shot in the front seat of a car, for every helpless Syrian refugee child who floats up on the banks of the Mediterranean, for every helpless human who can't beat the cancer and can't overcome the ALS, for every woman who can't get quite out of the situation where she's battered, for every powerless human in this world, Jesus says, I want to tell you where God is. Somewhere in the vast complexity of it all, God can't fix it. God can't secure it. God can't pull all the right strings. It's too complex. And God can't explain that to you. So God just enters it, and he wants you to know that he is flailing in that back seat too. He is reeling beneath the blows of that terminal diagnosis and they batter him and they bruise him and he is led like a lamb to a slaughter. This is why I'm Christian, not just theist, because our God is one who simply does not set unscathed above the pain, but tells us he is deeply in the midst, subjected to the pain, complexly subjected to it in such a way that he cannot, she cannot, we cannot extract ourselves from it immediately and quickly. And even on the cross, battered and bruised, the filter is still there. When you have seen me, you have seen God. God brought me back to Jesus and God showed me not a crucifixion that happened on a hill far away on a Friday along time ago, God showed me that what happened on that hill far away was a picture not simply of a six-hour crucified Messiah, but of a God who has always, Paul, been crucified, a God who has always been deeply embedded, a God who is Emmanuel with us. I don't know, as Nicholas Walterstorff said after the loss of his 25-year-old son, and Nick Walterstorff is one of the top three philosophical theologians in the Christian world, and my favorite theologian, but after the death of one of his five children, his 25-year-old son, he wrote his best piece of theology in a little book called Lament for a Son. Its erudition is brought down to incarnate flesh tones as a father at three o'clock in the morning grieves and bleeds ink onto the page after the loss of his son. It's the most profound theology that I've ever read. But as Walter Storff said, I suppose the question I now live by is not why do we suffer? I suppose the greater question that comes to me with great comfort through this message called Christ is not why do we suffer, but why does God suffer? Why? Does God subject God's self to suffering? We are left there admittedly to speculate. 
but this is why I'm Christian. A religion that only asks why do people suffer is only half a religion for me and not good enough. But a religion that offers me the reality that I intuit that if we are indeed suffering and if there is indeed a God, then that God can do nothing less than suffer with us. Why God has subjected God's self to suffering. In the person of Jesus, I'll close. Hebrews 12 said, So seeing then that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, who are they? Hebrews 11 closed by saying there were some people who believed deeply enough in the stuff Melissa was talking about today. There were some people who believed deeply enough in causes and the right and equality. They believed deeply enough in those things that Hebrews 11 said they were willing for the truth of those things to be sawn asunder. To be sewn up in sheepskins and to wander about until animals tore them apart. Hebrews 11 says there were some people who believed enough in the kingdom of God that for the sake of that kingdom and the equality that it offers, they were willing to die and to bleed on the balconies of Lorraine Motel. They are an impeccable soul. They are impeccable souls among us. Hebrews 11 concludes with them, these archetypes. And it opens with Hebrews 12 saying, so seeing that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of these Christ witnesses, these people who are willing to die and suffer for the right, let us at the very least run our race with patience, laying aside the weights and the sin that does so easily beset us that we might run this race well, looking unto Jesus. This is why I'm Christian. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him did not tell us it was worth our suffering, but for the joy set before him made it very clear that that joy set before him was worth even his suffering. And in his suffering, Jesus was very clear, you have seen the suffering of God. Somewhere in Jesus we are taught that God believes this maturation process that we are in, this evolutionary process that is freighted with pain and struggle. Paul said, if so be that we suffer with him, not for him. I would not be in a religion where I was suffering for a God. I would be in a religion where I was suffering with that God, and that's what Paul said we're doing. If so be that we suffer with him, we shall be glorified together with him. And I reckon that our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And I don't know how that glory unveils. But to a group of people standing at the base of a wall of existential angst and question, and we could not for anything look over that wall. We had no capacity to look over that wall at what is in the future. We simply stayed at the base of that painful wall. God did not expect us to believe that all of this was going to be good. God specially came in the person of Jesus and suffered, Paul said, more than all of us and with capacity looked over that wall and looked back through his bleeding to us and said, I don't expect you to believe it on your own merit. But I have seen and I believe. 
so let us consider him who endured such hostility of sinners lest we become weary and discouraged in our souls. And this week made me weary. This last year and a half has worn me out. And this last year and a half has been the best year of my life and it's been the most discouraging year of my life. But I am a Christian because I can look into the crucified one and I can draw strength that the ark of God's mercy is bending towards something called the kingdom and that love is going to win, that life is going to win, that death and hate and prejudice will not have the final say. And a God who is not sitting somewhere on a throne telling me to hang in there, but a God who is in the middle of that fray, crucified with us always, that is a God I can believe in. This, brothers and sisters, is at the heart of why Jesus died. Atonement is not about a God who needs blood. Atonement is about a God who is at one with us. And this, in the midst of a lot of bad news, is really, really good news. Can you say amen? Let's pray. Father, Mother, Creator, Spirit, thank you for the life of Jesus. Thank you for the life of God we have seen in Jesus. Thank you, crucified God for not leaving little four-year-old girls alone to grieve a father. Thank you, refugee God. Thank you, person of color God. Thank you, God who is transgendered and is certainly beyond gender. Thank you, transgendered black Syrian female Thank you, God, who came to us, not in simply a male, but came to us in flesh. Thank you, Emmanuel. And thank you for being willing to take it all the way to the end until even you said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Thank you for teaching us that that's not possible. And we now understand that the worst of news, even your death, is somehow in some grand, complex, beautiful, loving mystery, the best of news. We are not alone, and this fight will be won until not one more person starves to death under a bypass homelessly. The fight will continue, the death will continue, and life will overcome. We trust this. And we are grateful to be called Christian today. We are grateful to be followers of one named Jesus. We pray all of this in Christ's name. And with God's people say, amen. Now let us be good to one another. Come back next week.
We'll pick it up some more.